coming up next in The Ziggler Show. And then what you just said, what you sort of like wrapped around to is so powerful too. And I'm glad it actually landed with you, which is this notion that, you know, we spend so much time looking for sort of the surface level job or team or company or industry. And sometimes we find that thing and it gives us that feeling that we want, like we're fully alive and activated. Um, most of the time we don't, you know, that's what the research bears out. Even though it's slightly better, it's, it's really rare. But even when you do, at some point that job is going to end. And then when you go on to the next thing, you won't understand the deeper impulse, the deeper fundamental nature of the work that gave you that feeling beyond the job title. So you'll go looking for the same job title in a different company. And very often it's not the same actual thing. And you won't feel that thing and you'll wonder what's wrong. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with the setting? What's wrong with the job? So part of what I've been trying to do is go deeper and really understand what is that, what is that deeper impulse for effort? Because once we understand it on that level, then like you said, it gives us a certain amount of freedom. You know, we can look for that and find it in so many different domains, jobs, you know, like companies, teams. Um, so it gives us a lot of autonomy when we understand what's actually happening at a deeper level. Welcome to The Ziggler Show. I'm your host, Kevin Miller. On The Ziggler Show, my focus is getting to the root of personal and business development by digging into what actually helps us change and transform and achieve the progress we feel called to and the fulfillment we truly desire. Here I bring today's most influential people onto the show and take captive the core issues of human performance to have conversations about what really matters to our individual lives. Today, there are key intrinsic activities and aspects of work that truly make you come alive and within which are your greatest opportunities for top level success and your greatest fulfillment and joy. But we don't tend to realize what they are. We attribute them to a specific job or business and the roles that we had, the product or service we were involved with, the people included, but nearly every job or business ends or significantly changes and we lose it and try to recreate it somewhere else based on those external ingredients and often can't recreate it. Why? Well, it's because those are not the right ingredients and to showcase what the right ingredients are, I have Jonathan Fields back on the show. Jonathan was with me years ago and we talked about his book, How to Live a Good Life. Well, he has a really big podcast now called The Good Life Project and he's put together a work profile. You can take it for free at sparktype, S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E dot com. And he goes deep into what sparks us in our work in his new book called Sparked. If you want to go beyond merely listening and join our community of people devoted to making positive change in their life and work, come over to kevinmiller.co and join my Driven to Live community. You can go from listening to this podcast episode with Jonathan Sparks and join us to talk about and grapple with and apply the concepts to your life. Now I bring you Jonathan Sparks. So Jonathan, I wanted to talk to you about you know the impetus of this new book sparked and the spark type assessment however understanding now uh the uh the different types and that you're a maker and a scientist i understand that you probably just moved on to other things and so we don't have a whole lot to talk about today am i right 
<laughs> ah, man, this is, I am still very much in, in, in the process of creation and evolution within this body of work. So I'm, okay. I'm still fully in it for uh, at least the near future. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to try to do justice to talk about a lot of it, but I'm going to have a really hard time, not just talking about uh, myself and my own type, especially because I happen to have the exact same profile as you. Ah, uh, no kidding. So I'm a maker and a scientist. And, uh, I did that, you know, I read about it, but then of course took the test second day, got the email talking about the maker today, got the email about the scientist and yeah, interesting. They're, they're so similar. I mean, it, it feels like gosh, you're kind of, so I'll just focus on you. You're kind of true blue. You, you like to make, create things and you like to make and create things and you like to make, I mean, you're pretty solid across it. How, how similar is that where you find people are real common with their primary and shadow as opposed to a, a balance? Maybe it doesn't feel so yeah. bad. Yeah. You know, I think, I think it really depends on each individual. You know, you can look at, so, so the way that it works is, you know, you, you take the assessment and then you get assigned what we call a primary sparker type, yeah. which I see as your strongest impulse for effort. The thing you, you know, get up in the morning and you would work really hard at for no other reason than the way it makes you feel. And then there's this other thing that you're referencing that I call the shadow sparker type. And you can look at that as one of two ways as your runner up, and that could be a close runner-up or a pretty far away runner-up. And we usually have a pretty decent sense of what that is for us. But there's often a more nuanced relationship. And that is that very often we do the work of the shadow in order to be able to do the work of our primary at a higher level. Um, so it, and, and this shows up differently for different people. So you know, we're both maker scientists. That's how we would phrase it. Maker primary, scientist shadow. So I, I, you know, like maker slash scientist. And the way it shows up in my life, and, and maybe I'm curious actually how it shows up in yours too, is I, I open my eyes in the morning and it's all about the process of creation. I want to like, I want to have actual output. You know, there, I want to go from idea to something. That is the thing that has fueled me for as long as I can remember from the youngest days of my life. Along the way, of course, I'm going to stumble. I'm going to hit roadblocks or things I'm going to need to really, they're burning questions or puzzles that I need to figure out in order to sort of push through the process of creation because it's never a linear you know, process. So I'll sort of swap on my scientist hat and the scientist impulse is all about figuring out things, you know, the burning questions, puzzles, quandaries, problems. Um, and, and then uh, once I sort of like get the things solved, I'll immediately drop back into this generative mode of make the thing, make the thing. But you're right in a really interesting way that there actually, there's a really powerful similarity between the maker and the scientist. And that's this, that they both spend the vast majority of their time living and working and investing effort in the presence of uncertainty and questions. You know, so the maker, it's all about making ideas manifest something from nothing, which means you often don't know if that something is possible to be created. You're kind of, you know, you're pushing through and you're taking action, you're investing energy and resources. And oftentimes you have no idea if the thing that you have in your mind, you know, like the vision of it is actually possible or if it's right. going to look anything like what you actually think it's going to look like. So you're living in the question which is really uncomfortable for most people. And the same thing with the scientist, because that is in fact your primary impulse to live in the question. In fact, for the scientist, very often, you know, it is about 
you know, finding the answer, you know, like solving the puzzle, whether something gets made out of that or created that, that, you know, is left behind isn't so important. It's about the question, but both of them spend a vast majority of time living with high levels of uncertainty and, um, and question. And you have to develop the skill of making decisions, taking actions, allocating resources when you're in this state of a lot of uncertainty and that can be really hard for a lot of people, including makers and scientists. Just because you have the impulse to be there doesn't mean that you're necessarily resourced from a mindset standpoint to find a place of equanimity and calmness and to be okay when you're in that space. And that, that can sometimes be a shared tension between both of those impulses. It, the term of certainty jumped out to me, Jonathan, because... It's literally been something that I have been kind of on a soapbox with lately and just kind of feel the, you know, hairs raised in the back of my neck with certainty. I mean, we're in a culture right now where everybody wants to, you know, say with certainty, their opinion, their viewpoint, what reality is. And I, I literally found myself so often going, I, I am less certain today on most everything uh, than ever. Now, it doesn't mean I'm doubtful necessarily. It doesn't mean I'm, I mean, I'm optimistic, I'm hopeful and whatever, but to say I'm, I'm certain. Yeah. And I love the uncertainty. So part of where I put, as I was learning about this, learning about the spark types that I put this towards was wood making. So that's a mm. hobby of mine. I do that. I live up in the forest. I've got a wood mill. And I'm not, I don't, I do not think of myself as a carpenter. I'm not really that good, but I can kind of make functional art, you know, really cool bunk beds yeah. for my kids and, <laughs> and a deck that's pretty good. And, uh, and, uh, but what I've realized is if you give me a blueprint and give me the materials, there's no joy at it at all. Just somebody else do it. I, I love having the raw materials and just having an idea of, you know, we really need a roof over the front door and just coming out and standing there and looking at it and figuring something out. And it'll wake me up in the morning. If I wake up at night to go to the bathroom at 2 a.m., then all of a sudden I'm thinking about this roof. I, there's no, I don't need to. It's not pressing. It's just for fun. And yet that's where I am. And the, uh, yeah, the uncertainty of figuring out how to do this. So you're looking at the types. It, it literally did what you guys talk about is I felt like, oh. Somebody knows me and yeah. what I loved in reading it that I want everybody to hear is realizing it showed me the transferable propensities. It showed me the propensities within myself that are transferable to anything and everything that I do. And that made sense. So for somebody out there who's yeah looking for, gosh, what job, what business, whatever, holy smokes, here's where you'll figure out where you're going to flourish. And if you're not participating in these types where you're going to languish. That was beautiful. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. You know, when I was, um, you know, we spent years developing the types and then building the assessment and testing and validating it. And, um, and when I finally sat down to write the book, you know, you, you always have to ask, you know, if for me, at least if I'm committing to writing a book, it's a huge amount of time and energy to put into a project, which means I'm saying no to a whole bunch of other things. So when I sit down to write it, you know, I ask myself, what is my intention? What is my intention in writing this? And, and what is the metric that I'm really looking? How will I, how will I know that I feel good about this, you know, before anyone even reads it. And for me, what I kept saying to myself is, you know, I, what, what, 
it's a little bit of a weird question, but you know, I would ask myself, what do I want for readers when, when they read this and when they interact with the whole body of work? And I kept going back to this phrase in my head. I say, I kept thinking to myself, I want people to feel seen. Hmm. You know, and I kept writing to that. And you know, I'm drawing at this point from two and a half decades of research and experimentation and service and consulting, and now over 500,000 people through an assessment with 25 million data points. So there's a lot to draw from, right? Um, and you can hear, by the way, I'm, I'm in New York City still for a short I, while. I, I, I literally am used to that. <laughs> if, I am in, if I have somebody on the show from New York City, we are going to have a siren in the yeah, podcast. 100%, just, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the question for me was, um, am I writing in a way where somebody who's reading this, where there's something that literally will land on a visceral embodied level, they'll feel it physically, like, I feel seen. Like there is something about me that I, maybe I haven't even seen it in myself. I haven't seen myself this way. And, and it's, it feels like you're understood, you're seen, you're heard, you're held. And, and that this thing, this impulse that you've always known is there. And for so many people, they've stifled is valid. And then you have the language to then turn around and share that with other people and then ask them the same thing. Like I, I want to do this work too, so we can see each other at a different level. And then what you just said, what you sort of like wrapped around to is so powerful too. And I'm glad it actually landed with you, which is this notion that, you know, we spend so much time looking for sort of the surface level job or team or company or industry. And sometimes we find that thing and it gives us that feeling that we want, like we're fully alive and activated. Um, most of the time we don't, you know, that's what the research bears out, even though it's slightly better, it's, it's really rare. But even when you do, at some point that job is going to end. And then when you go on to the next thing, you won't understand the deeper impulse, the deeper fundamental nature of the work that gave you that feeling beyond the job title. So you'll go looking for the same job title in a different company. And very often it's not the same actual thing and you won't feel that thing and you'll wonder what's wrong. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with the setting? What's wrong with the job? So part of what I've been trying to do is go deeper and really understand what is that, what is that deeper impulse for effort? Because once we understand it on that level, then like you said, it gives us a certain amount of freedom. You know, we can look for that and find it in so many different domains, jobs, you know, like companies, teams. Um, so it gives us a lot of autonomy when we understand what's actually happening at a deeper level. And that's kind of where I've really been focusing a lot of my work. Well, you took, so here, here again, you took your type. So you created this thing. You took your type. You came out as a maker and it really stood out to me when I went to your website, jonathanfields.com. What's it do? It says right there, front and center, I make. I make things that move people. I make. I, I literally thought about that, Jonathan, for my own ventures of saying that is what I do. I've always, I've known that for a long time. I've had from my wife to my business partners to whatever, they, they, and they know as well. My favorite thing is an idea, a possibility, and a, yeah. blank, and a blank sheet of paper. That's it. And I love the framework. Of course, once the framework's done, I'm kind of done. I'm ready to go. <laughs> You tap out. You're like, okay, so where's the next thing? I, like, where's the next blank piece of paper? And, and that is such a similar story with makers. I mean, you know, it's sort of like once it's time to sort of like move into incremental growth, systems, process, scale, 
you know, that's amazing for people of other types, but like the maker, that hyper generative, something from nothing stage tends to end. And you're kind of like, okay, it's cool. I'm proud of what I did. And it's almost like you bless it on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so taking, again, I love the concept of, I've got older kids like, like you, and as they look at whether it's a job, a career field or whatever, I mean, we can look at it. will just pick some of the big ones out there, you know, lawyer, doctor, architect, accountant, whatever to know their type, to know that thing. Cause I really, I really took it as a kind of an activity, uh, a pulse of what am I going to be engaged with? So for me, am I going to be, if, if somebody offered me a job or uh, be a part of a business or whatever, what is the role that I'm going to be engaged in? And what am I going to be doing? Am I going to be able to make, am I going to be doing, you know, the scientific side, looking, you know, figuring out how to do this thing or not. Otherwise we're in trouble. So for my kids or for anybody listening out there, if you're looking at this role, like you, you talked about, what is the activity you're going to be engaged in day in and day out? And I love that because, man, I have so many interests. I'm sure like you, so many interests, yeah. but I look at those and go, would I like to like, let's take woodworking. Would I like to do that eight, 10 hours a day? No, it's a fun hobby and a fun outlet, but I don't, my other love is a passion is just be outdoors on a trail, running, riding. I mean, I love, it's one of the greatest spices of my life. Do I want to do it day in and day out vocationally? Nope. No, I, I don't. So even the things that I enjoy, it really helped me look at what am I okay with? Honestly, man, I can sit at a computer and write and create pretty much all day long with those other things thrown in to give me juice. But that was what felt powerful. I feel like I, there's no kid that needs to leave high school without knowing their type and knowing this is what I'm going to have to go find a role that fulfills. Yeah. You know, it's fun to me that you referenced the woodworking a couple times now. So most of my making has been in the sort of like the digital space for the last 10 years. I mean, we've created also a lot of experienced design. You know, we ran an adult summer camp for five years, the last four days of every summer where we have 450 people in a 160 acre sleepaway camp. So, you know, we, we were, it was, we were designing this immersive experience, but most of what I've been making for a long time now has been non-physical. Me, me and too. I realized, me too. yeah, but, but it's interesting because it seems like you're okay with that. What I've started to realize recently is that I'm actually not. Um, wow. So I am really drawn. There's something in me that is really drawn to the physical process of creation, like the actual physical objects. So for me, three years ago, I set aside a month and I kind of vanished away. I drove out to rural Pennsylvania. I was living above this partially renovated roadhouse where you'd look out the window and you'd just see, you know, like cows and fields. And downstairs, um, it was the, the, the upstairs of a roadhouse of a luthier, a guitar builder. And I spent a month working with him sort of like as a, a trainee while we worked side by side. And he walked me through the process of building by hand an acoustic guitar in his workshop, you know, from raw wood all the way through to finished project. We worked 13 hour days with a single 40 minute break. I was you know, like dog tired by the end of every day, but I was more nourished and fulfilled than I think I have been in a few decades. And wow. um, I realized that for me, there's always been, uh, there's been like something that's a little bit missing. I mean, I, I get to make amazing things and it's really fulfilling, but at the same time, I was like, I couldn't put my finger on it. There was something that wasn't quite right. And what I realized was 
it's the process of physical making, actually working with my hands with physical objects. That is my highest expression where I sort of like am most fulfilled, most satisfied by it. So I'm now working on ways to figure out how to get back to that more. You know, I'm, I'll never walk away from creating media and podcasts and audio and video and writing. But at the same time, I've actually reconnected with the fact that the physical process for me is really, really powerful and necessary in my life. You are listening to The Ziggler Show and my conversation with Jonathan Fields. We'll be right back. Okay, so that's an interesting question or an, an interesting perspective that I'll put at you. So let's say that. So let's, say we, let's say we take you. Take you and me. We both come out with maker scientists, so very similar in the endeavors that we want to engage in. And now you just made a distinction between, let's just call it electronic and physical. Because yeah, most of my time is in front of a computer creating content, whether it's podcasts and I'm writing a book now and you know, uh, even business plans. I mean, it's happening you know, online and it's the, right, right. You know, and really even in the information stuff, because my businesses don't generally involve a physical product necessarily. So you have been as well. Then we both have these physical outlets and you're saying you're realizing that you want more physical and I'm looking at it and going, I, I kind of have a finite amount there. I'm, 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 I'm not. <laughs> yeah. And we want to put ourselves, the, the, I think the propensity then is we're going to put ourselves there and say, okay, so Jonathan's figured out he needs 80% of his making time in the physical. Kevin's figured out 80% in the electronic and that's it. Okay. And we set ourselves there. The thing that I continue to bump up against is, is that legitimate or because we want to, we want a black and white answer, right? Is that it? Or could we look and go, gosh, that's where we find ourselves currently. But what if after the next year, six months, year, three years, five years, and you now immerse yourself in the physical, is it possible you could say, gosh, I don't know, man, I feel like I kind of scratched that itch. I really want to get back into the electronic space. Is that viable possible or is yeah. it? Well, but for people to look out there, do they, because I tend to want to say, look, be open to seasons and cycles instead of us labeling ourselves. And this is what it is for eternity. What do you think? Yeah, and, and actually, I, I completely agree with that. To, to me, what we're seeing, and, and this is my take right now, um, and like, you know, wearing the scientist hat, I always have to hold myself open to the possibility that, you know, like enough data will come in that, you know, there's an evolution of thought. But here's where I am right now. To me, the, the underlying impulse, the fundamental impulse to create, what we're seeing across most people is that stays fairly consistent for life, barring really major traumatic change or really, really big things that happen in life that literally rewire your brain. But the way that it, it gets expressed in any given moment over a period of life, like you said, cycles or seasons may evolve. You know, you may find yourself really drawn to one medium or one mode of creation for a window of life. And it just feels like it's amazing. And that may actually consume you for your entire life. You know, I have friends that started painting when they were six and never stopped, you know, um, and they have no desire to ever work with any other form of creation. And then I have friends where it's been an evolutionary process where they started physical and maybe then they started coding when they were in their teens and they absolutely loved it. And then they got exposed to hardware and then, you know, because the coding led them to this different aspect of the, the creation process. And then they got really into actual, you know, like the hardware side of creation. And then maybe later in life, you know, like they hit their 60s and they want to start writing. And so 
my sense is the underlying impulse stays fairly consistent, but the way that exp- it is expressed can be a blend at any given time. It can evolve as like an intense focus on one channel for a season. Um, to me, that is entirely unique to every individual and certainly um, can change and evolve over time. Do you feel in your research and in the utilization of the spark types that people are generally able to tap into what is natural and true to them as opposed to finding that some people are pretty removed from it because of, I'm always interested in the nature versus nurture discussion, natural versus environmental. So, you know, I grew up in a home, all I knew was entrepreneurship. I met my dad, never worked for another soul. I, I, I had no concept and I don't today. I've never done that. Now I have a bunch of kids and we've had to address that as I put them into, they all do farmer's market. We start them off in business. Right, early. Right. <laughs> and then I'll never forget my oldest son at one point said, I, I just don't know if it's for me. I really like more direction than what I get in entrepreneurship, what he gets from me. I'm not a, you know, I'm just, Hey, there's the goal. You figure it out. And he's like, that doesn't work for me. And so I've had to look at that. And I think I've, I hope I've done a good job of opening my kids up to not just my own brainwashing, but back to that. Do you find that people sometimes have to struggle with the environmental programming that maybe pulled them away from their nature or are most of them pretty apt to come in and figure that out? Yeah, no, I think it definitely rears its head in different ways. And also what we've seen is it's different for different types. So I'll give an interesting example. Um, The maker very often shows itself really early in life. And I don't think it's because it actually, you know, arises any earlier than any of these impulses. I think it's because it's socially rewarded and um, and introduced way earlier. So, you know, you go to school in preschool or like even as a toddler, what do you do to keep yourself busy? Well, you give your kid crayons or toys or blocks to build with. So, so you know, what's really interesting is that um, some of these spark types tend to be rewarded and introduced at a really young age. Um, so the maker, for example, you know, from the youngest age, toddlers, what, what do we give them if we want to keep them busy or, you know, do an activity with them? We color, we give them crayons, we give them blocks. Very often, it's all wrapped around activities that revolve creation, you know, making. But we don't really think of it that way. It's just what we do. So we give it to them and it keeps them occupied. And then when they start to build skill at that, we reward it. So it becomes this thing which is really rewarded at a young age. And then it starts to show itself a lot earlier. Now, on the other hand, we have um, a sparkotype like the performer. Now, the performer's fundamental impulse is to enliven, animate, and energize an interaction moment or experience. When kids are really little, oftentimes this is noticed and it's channeled into the performing arts. They're going to sing and they're going to dance and they're going to put on a show for the family and then they're going to be involved in theater and school. But then an interesting thing happens, you know, a kid hits high school and then they start to emerge out of that. And then all of a sudden the thing they love to do, the parents are like, Oh, well, that's a really nice hobby Mm -hmm. or it's a fun thing to do on the side. And now it starts to get stifled or maybe even when they're like emerging from middle school, the parents start to get concerned that the kids are actually investing a little bit too much in it. And they start to think, well, I love my kid. I want them to be safe. I want them to be able to support themselves in the world. And so few people, 
in the performing arts are able to sustain themselves that way. So let me kind of start to nudge them away from it. And they start to inadvertently plant the seed that this is actually not a valid impulse, right? So it gets pulled away and then even stifled or repressed often for decades after that. And the reason is not because it's an, an invalid impulse, but it's because societally or familiarly, we only see performing arts as, a, as the expression of it, rather than saying, no, this impulse, you bring it to a boardroom, you bring it to a meeting, you yes. bring it to a sales conversation, you bring it to so many different arenas and environments and is fabulously valued and really well compensated and rewarded. But we tend not to expand out that way. We just see this one conduit and it scares us. So we often shut it down. So I think a lot of it is... Um, the impulses, I, I do believe, really tend to, the seeds get planted very early in life, but they tend to show themselves in different ways at different stages based on what we wrap around them culturally. Well, I appreciate you saying that because even reading the book, Back to the Maker, I think most of the examples, at least the ones that I, I, I paid attention to, were more of the what we talked about a minute ago, the physical aspect. And I was thinking, okay, this is me, but yeah, I spend most of my time over here. And I, again, I don't, electronic probably isn't the best overall terminology, but that's where I'm making things over here in ideas and opportunities as opposed to, well, wood or painting or whatnot. Is that in the, I, if I, either I missed it or is there a place within the book or the online assessment where you do help people round out to say, okay, if you are a, a maven, for instance, which, you know, I don't know. I think that was the first one that was in the book. If you are that here are, here's kind of a breadth of where you could apply that. And, and I really like what you said too, to say, if you are X culturally, we generally lump that all into this one place like performer that you're going to go into the performing yeah. arts, but let's look, you can expand that out. Does that happen on one of the platforms? <laughs> It does. So in the book, actually, there's an entire chapter called Spark Your Work, where we kind of walk you through this process where we say, okay, so here's your fundamental impulse or your set of impulses, right? Like your primary or shadow. And, but what does this look like in the real world? How do we get granular? Like, how do we actually know how this gets applied in the context of work? Um, And when I say work, by the way, I'm talking about I'm using a broad, a broad umbrella here. You know, this may be the thing you get paid for. It's, it's really great when you can express this in a major way, you know, doing the thing that, that earns your living. Um, but I'm also talking about all the ways that we invest effort. It could be a primary role, maybe parenting, maybe caretaking. Yeah. It could be a devotion, like something that you do on the side. It could be a side hustle. Um, so it's all the ways that we actually invest effort. Those are the things that I'm talking about. So when we get to that, you know, there is a whole process in the book where we walk you through creating what I call um, your sparkotype expression inventory, where we look historically at different categories and we start to tease out how have these things showed up historically, because that gives us breadcrumbs. It gives us a lot of specific hints about what we might look for moving forward in in either reimagining our existing work, our existing job, or looking for something new. Like what, what do we know, you know, like we really would need to be there. But I'm also really careful to make it super clear that this is not an all-inclusive list and it is a growing inventory. It's dynamic. It will keep expanding for life. You know, when we look historically at these specific things, jobs, tasks, tools, processes that have given us this feeling that we want, it's a lot of, they're great hints, but it's not the universe because you could have, uh, let's say, 
you know, you have an opportunity presented to you, you know, and it sounds really interesting. And it sounds like, you know, it could tick all the boxes for you where you could, you're, you could do the work of your spark type in a really big way. But you look back at that inventory of how it's shown up in the past and you don't really see, you know, what you'd be doing in this new thing and the things you've been doing in the past. I think it's really important not to say no to it just because you haven't had the experience yet that would let you know whether this, in fact, is a valid conduit for the expression of this impulse for you or not. So to me, you know, we deconstruct it in the book and I walk you through a whole process of getting specific. And that is super helpful in looking back at your current job and looking at new opportunities and getting a much better feel for what to start to say yes or no to. But at the same time, always super important to be open to experimentation. And if it's not clear to almost say yes, not necessarily because you feel like you have to succeed at this new thing or it's an absolute yes, but yes to let me run this experiment and see if this is actually something that will give me what I need. Um, and sometimes the answer is yes and sometimes the answer is no. But I love the, the idea of sort of like framing things as experiments yeah. because then you can't fail because you're always going to learn from that experience, whether this is something that um, activates the impulse or not. Okay, it's interesting. I, I'm thinking on a different tangent here as you say that. I had my, I had six of my kids take this, Jonathan, <laughs> uh, and my wife and a couple close friends. I've, I've actually got their list here and we were talking about it. And we'll, we'll be digging in more, but it's interesting as you talk about some of the roles and you mentioned a second ago, you know, parenting, whatnot to take this and say, cause you say in the book or you say in the whole platform, this is your, your muse is kind of your work impulse. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I would say that, you know, it's, it, it is the impulse to exert effort. So you could, you know, the impulse for, for work to invest yourself in work. Yeah. Okay. To say, okay. So if I look at that and go again, for me, for, so maker scientist, that that is where, if I'm going to be the fullest expression of myself at my full capacity capability, I'm going to be best served to be participating in those roles and activities for the majority of my days. I mean, that's, so if I say that, so it's interesting if I took myself as a single person, which I can't really remember anymore. And I, let's say I'm doing this and then to say, okay, you're going to get married by a house. How is that going to integrate into that? And now even further, you're going to have a child and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll say, I won't do gender stereotyping, but let's say, you know, if you've got a couple, they're going to have a child and say, okay, well, who's going to be the, if there's going to be a primary caregiver, as opposed to, you know, daycare or whatever, who's going to stay home with it? How is that going to fit? And that's interesting to think of as a maker. So as a guy, as a guy, I didn't have to deal with that because I, my wife had the baby, she's nursing the baby. I just started working more and we went those stereotypical directions. But if I had stayed home, how would that have fleshed out with my desire to make and create when I'm doing the day-to-day -day monotony of child caring? Yeah. I, you know, I think that the broader question you're asking is, can you take any one of these impulses and fit them into uh, any, any, basically any type of job or okay. role or are certain impulses only su suited for certain jobs sure. or roles? And the answer is the former. Um, you can take this and basically figure out. So let's, let's take childcare for you. Right. Um, 
most people think of that, oh, as, as you know, the vast majority of it is it's, it's service oriented. You know, you're constantly in service of your child, of your baby. And it is absolutely a ton. Now, if you were a maker and you wanted to play that role and you want it to feel really good for you and, and you're like, Assuming, yes, like a big part of our reward here is the nourishment of developing a relationship with the child and the bond. And that's all that's amazing. So let's sort of take that off the table because that's kind of a part of it all. Um, now, how would you bring your maker impulse to make that experience really nourishing beyond that? Right. Well, you could do all sorts of things with that kid to start to create things for them. So maybe you're you're co-creating with them once they become a toddler and they actually have you know the ability to, to work with you to play and make things together. But maybe, and we have actually seen this done, you know, like maybe you're a woodworker and you decide I'm going to, I'm going to literally build the crib by hand and I'm going to make an environment for my child. I'm going to make a whole play world for my child to navigate yeah. through, yeah. you know, I'm going to make, I'm going to create all sorts of things for them to interact with. I'm going to create moments of, you know, I can, I can turn that Jones into an experiential creation process also. So, so the, the notion is like, you're right. Like we, we tend to wrap our, our heads around these stereotypical tasks that are involved in a particular job or role, not realizing that we can basically reimagine them in any way possible to allow that impulse that exists in us to really shine through. You are listening to The Ziggler Show in my conversation with Jonathan Fields. We'll be right back. So you can reimagine them and yet my propensity with a business. So let's say I'm going to go open a coffee shop because I love coffee. Actually be a coffee wine bar because I like both ends. <laughs> so I'm going to do that. And um, we look at the roles within that. We are going to, hey, if you've got a, a cook, you know, you've got a barista, you've got a server, you've got a greeter, you've got a hostess, you've got somebody running the book, somebody do that, that obviously, as we look at the different types, there are some that are going to be naturally, I have a better propensity to, to fulfill those roles. Yeah. So I would say yes and no, actually. Okay. Um, I think we tend to conventionally assign roles because we make those assumptions. Okay. But let's look at the, the example you just used, a restaurant, right? Um, let's talk about the role of a server, you know? Um, so we would just maybe automatically assume that somebody who's been doing this their whole life, somebody who says they love that job, you know, and they can't wait to get to the restaurant, um, that that must be somebody who has this impulse. Let's, let's, one of the impulses is what I call the nurturer. And that's all about lifting people up, taking care of people, making them feel held, right? So there would probably be a logical assumption that somebody who does that job and has done it for years and really loves it and feels nourished by it beyond the paycheck, they must have that impulse. Like that's got to be the central thing that aligns really well with that particular job. But in fact, that wouldn't be right. I would guess that some people, in fact, do have that impulse. In fact, it's one of the stories in the book is somebody who spent 15 years um, waiting tables. But at the same time, you might also have the impulse um, for being uh, a the scientist, let's say, right? So you might like the thing that might really, really, really make you light up is like, okay, so I have a table of eight people here, 
how do I craft the experience so that it is the most magical thing that they've ever had in their lives? How do I actually get encyclopedic about understanding for every appetizer, for every entree, for every dessert, I know exactly what to pair that with. And I know whose thing on, on one person at the table goes with the other thing in a really powerful way. And because I want to earn the best possible living, how can I run a series of experiments where I change the way that I present, I change the way I make offers, I change the language that I use, I change the sequencing of what I do and the recommendations I make in order to optimize how much I'm going to get tipped. You know, so now I'm wearing the scientist hat. I'm figuring out all of these cool, complex problems. I'm solving the puzzles. Or maybe my impulse is the sage, which is all about awakening insight, transferring. I want people to know more stuff. So I'm going to tell them when they ask me, hey, tell me about this dish. I'm on fire, yeah. right? Because I'm going to tell them, well, we get this, you know, like uh, we, we get this, this salmon from this small place in this tiny little island. Let me tell you how it's raised. I'm going to tell you the story about the salmon. Then I'm going to tell you how it pairs so beautifully with this other thing because the acids here work with the fats here, which work with the salt here, because I want you to know, I know all this stuff and I'm so excited to share it with you. And that makes it a magical experience. So I think we, we need to pull back from those assumptions that we, we just traditionally associate with roles and say, no, in fact, Yes, those are the assumptions that we very often lead with, but pretty much any one of these impulses can be really fully expressed and activated in almost any job or role. We just might have to really reimagine how we do it. Did you ever wait tables? No, I actually, I washed dishes for a short amount of time and that was it. Well, because I, I did uh, during some of my initial cycling years on my way to being a, a pro cyclist, I waited tables at high-end restaurants and I actually liked it. And, and I, cause I, I think, and I'm, I didn't, I hadn't thought about it in this context. And I think I looked at, yeah, every table was uncertain. I didn't know the people. I didn't know their type Were they the, you know, were they going to be this type? Did they want this type of service? Did they want to interact? Did they want me to be professional? Do they, do they want me to, you know, sit down at the table or act like a concierge? And to figure that out, there was some fun in that. Cause I was thinking about how to nuance this relationship to serve them the best. So I get the best tip. It was pretty selfish in that, but yeah. Yeah. And, and you could actually wear both the maker hat and the scientist hat because you're figuring out something really cool and interesting. And it's always different with every single table and all the people. And at the same time, you're making a moment. You, there's a creation process that's unfolding. What was it, Jonathan? I mean, cause there's, there's not a lack of resources that cite, Hey, we can help you figure out where you are best predisposed for a job. I mean, we've had those in, you know, even personality profiles 30 years yep. ago and whatnot, take the profile and you come out as X, Y, Z and your personality profile that probably fits, you know, this big list of, of jobs or whatnot, obviously not to diss anything that's out there, but you saw a you saw a need. And first, just from a personal standpoint, I'm curious with you, especially with a, a similar spark type here. Do you, so prior to the question I just asked there, to the, to the answer you're going to give on what, on what motivated you, was the motivation, did you see it as, man, I am passionate for people to know this and go do what they want? Or did you feel it as a burden of, oh, I'm, I'm pained by what I'm seeing and I want to go serve that? Yeah, it was more, uh, you know, it was probably a blend of both. Um, 
one of the questions people have been asking me for pretty much my entire adult career is what should I do with my life? And when they ask me in particular, what they're really asking is it's always mostly in the context of work. How do I find a new work that nourishes me, that makes me come alive? And of course, you know, like I spent a lot of time doing a lot of research, um, both in the world of academia, in the world of spirituality, in the world of business, and and seen a lot of models and frameworks and you know peer-reviewed published uh, research, and seen a tremendous amount. Like you said, there's there's no lack of assessments or typing tools that are out there and have been out there for many years. And the last thing I wanted to do was invest years of my life in creating this new body of work and these new tools and ideas if the question was already answered, if the tools were already out there to help people. But I kept coming back and I kept saying, you know, there are some great tools out there and they're answering a lot of different questions. And very often they're more generalized personality tools, which are great They're or they're about relational styles, which is great to know. You know, they're they're more broad-based, which is really useful, or they're super uh, specific but this, you know, and you know, the via strengths or strengths finder come to mind, which is, you know, via is more about character traits and, and strengths finder is more about skills and talents. And they're all great and they add pieces of the puzzle. But what I wasn't seeing was were ideas and tools that answer like the most basic question, which is what is the underlying impulse for effort for all of this? Like what wakes you up in the morning and makes you want to do this? Because if we can figure that out, if we can identify it, we can map it. And then we can align the way that we invest effort in the world, the way we work, you know, then not only do we feel a whole lot better on a personal level, but work outcomes start to magnify, you know, like motivation becomes much less of an issue because if you're aligning most of what you do with the thing that you want to do anyway, even if you didn't get paid to do it, it's not going to be a whole lot of friction getting you to wake up in the morning and do it, you know? So there was sort of like, there were different meta levels of motivation for me to invest myself in this. And I think a lot of what's out there in the market in terms of other typing tools and, and indexes are, are awesome and powerful and a lot of ways complementary. I'm a huge fan of just investing in different, different insights and different tools so we can come at the process of self-awareness from different angles and really just keep knowing ourselves better. You know, I grew up in a home with parents who were very open to the, you know, the, the biblical perspective. There's a verse, you know, train up a child in the way that they are bent, not in the way that you want them bent, but that they are naturally bent. So I grew up in that. I had that maybe one of the greatest privileges of my life that I give credit to. I've never had a more, I, I had, I said this at lunch with a friend yesterday, Jonathan, in regards to what I, what I want for people, what I, I've never known a morning that I woke up and I would have rather just kept sleeping that mm-hmm. I did not want to get out of bed. And we're, as you know, man, we are in a time right now where one of the most rapid chronic illnesses that we're dealing with is diseases of despair, depression, yeah. and, and literal suicide is one of the fastest growing areas, people that don't have a reason to wake up in the morning. And you cited, you said it just a second ago, and you cited it in the book that when you type in, uh, what was it? What should I do with? No, no. It was just, what should I do? I did it. You had it in the book. So I went and tried it. So I went onto Google and I typed in, what should I do? First thing that came up in the little smart reader, whatever there was with my life. Yeah. Holy smokes. I mean, that's, yeah. That's daunting. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it tells you that like we, this great existential question has not gone away. And it also tells right, you, right. and this was a big part of why I like invested so much energy in this work is that it told, that told me that while we have amazing tools and ideas out there, we're still not getting to the source. Agreed. And, I, and I'm not saying that I have this, you know, like, you know, the, the one thing that will figure out like every answer for every person, but at least, you know, I'm working on creating ideas and tools that maybe get, an, you know, a, a certain amount of people a lot closer to it. You know, you still have to do the work and you still have to tease it out. What does this look like? But um, yeah, I mean, those questions are still there and the stats on work, even before the last 18 months, the stats on work and engagement and meaningfulness and purpose have been relatively disastrous. Uh, I was going to say worse decades. than worse than ever. Yeah, with with whatever yeah. resources we may think we have, it's worse than ever. No different than with whatever knowledge and understanding we may think we have of health and wellness. We are literally more overweight and sicker than ever. So, and I yeah. I, I keep preaching that because people hear lifespan. Oh, we're living longer than ever. We're existing. Our heartbeat is is, but our health span is shorter than ever. Yeah. Um, you you on. Instagram, I saw a post, I think it was recently, and it said, it was kind of your own little label, said maker, scientist, dad, husband, lead architect behind the spark types, and fueled by dark chocolate, which if I didn't love you before, man, uh, dark chocolate is, uh, it's another, another pillar of my, of my life. So I'm with you there. And also the word that stuck out there was architect. I have not, again, I've not given, just like maker and scientist, I haven't really given those focus in my life. I haven't been real, I haven't been super aware, but the architect one keeps coming up. My brother's a brand, my, my brother, uh, Jared Angaza, he's a brand specialist. And he came up with that with me really in recent years. He says, gosh, architect keeps, you know, coming up, but I still hadn't grabbed onto that. So it was interesting, interesting. as a, what's, yeah, as a, as a maker scientist that you had that, because I feel like I need to embrace that more. That fits me. Do you find, is there for each type or each pairing, I guess we need to say often a, again, not to, not to confine it, but I think I I need to be in a place, whatever I'm doing of architecting. Do you find that Mm. most people are, should be able to find something that's a, that's a little more ethical because maker is hard for me to take. If I'm going into the worldwide job search and go, Hey, I'm a maker, hire me okay, that's a little different. But if I say I need to be architecting, not an architect, as you would say, don't, don't put it just, I don't have to go be an architect, but I need to be architecting that most people should be able to embrace. I need to be managing. I need to be administrating. I need to be leading if I'm going to be in my best place. Yeah, I think so. And that's, you know, the, um, so what you were referencing is actually my bio, I think, um, okay. on, on Twitter or on Instagram or something. Um, okay. It's sort of like the same thing. It's like dad, husband, uh, uh, podcaster, lead architect of Spark Types, and, and yes, fueled by dark chocolate. Um, I'm pretty sure that that's my blood type. Um, <laughs> <That's good. laughs> so, Me too. Um, so, um, but yeah, I, I think we do tend to um, – want a common language beyond sort of like this fundamental thing. I mean, that, that's a lot of the reason that the book exists, to be honest with you, is because I wanted to actually be able to go deeper into it and say, okay, so this is on a more granular level. Like 
this is kind of like the language that, that different people use. This is how it shows up in different ways and different stories and different parts of life. Um, and with radically different sweep of humanity also, yeah. you know, um, and, uh, but yeah, and, and it's not necessarily something that you put on your resume, you know, like, um, but knowing that it's important to you, I think is really useful when you're trying to figure out what to say yes or no to. Is it, would you say, so if you take this, if you take somebody's type, which gosh, I want to point out to people that it's in the back of the book. I think it's in the appendix. I really appreciated you took literally every pairing of primary and shadow and showed the percentage of, would you say the populace or at least the percentage of people who have taken it? The, the, yeah, I would say the percentage of people who've taken the assessment, because there's about half a million people who've taken it so far. Um, and I don't say the general public because um, there's the, you're clearly going to get some numbers that are a little out of balance because there's going to be a bit of bias in everything sure. that we all do. You know, like who shows up to take an assessment in the first place? You know, probably there's going to be an overbalance of maker uh, of mavens in there because they want to know everything, including more about themselves. Um, that said, we've we've done enough of this work with organizations and teams where they're actually not voluntarily taking it. They're sort of like it's assigned as part of, you know, an engagement or a consulting thing. Um, and we still see like, you know, like pretty similar pre prevalences even in different groups. But yeah, um, we listed all of the pairings in the back of the book because I just thought it was really fascinating to see them. I, I did too. And I honestly, maybe this is part of our type as well. I like to see myself as being, you know, different and, and, yeah. rare, and rare and whatnot. And actually, and I looked at it and I thought, it's actually not the most different rare out of those things. There's a lot it of It is them. not. It is not. So I'm more normal than I would like to think. Um, okay. So, but when I look at that, so I look at that and say, okay, I am a, uh, you know, maker scientist on that for me to be, if I can use the word fulfilled in my day-to-day -day work, life task, you know, what, whatever, would you say that you find that if I'm going to, because most of us are not going to be able to spend 100% of our time right. in there. So if I'm a painter? Can I spend 100%? I mean, no, you're going to have to actually have some personal hygiene. You might have to pay the bills. You know, you got to do some business stuff or at least delegate that stuff to have somebody. So back to that question, where would you say is a healthy, a healthy percentage of your time? So John, so for you, Jonathan, that you would yeah. say, I, I focus on creating a lifestyle to where I'm spending X amount of time in that type. Yeah, it's a really interesting question and one that I've gotten a number of times. And so I've, I've spent some time thinking about it. And I think my pat answer in the early days would have been, well, you like the majority of your time. But I think I've kind of pulled away from that because what I've realized over time is that I'm not you. I'm not somebody who lives a profoundly different life than me. I don't have the same constraints, limitations, concerns, privilege, lack of privilege, um, lifestyle, needs, demands, hopes, aspirations. And my sense is, you know, those things all affect um, how much we need to be able to express this impulse to feel okay. To me, it's more of a spectrum. Basically, the more, the better. But also at the same time, you know, if you're, if, if you're living in a way where, you know, you have a deeply held value of sustaining um, and supporting a family, 
you know, and you're working two jobs um, and you're maybe a, a sole provider. And then you've got parents who are relying on you or people who are relying on you. In, in addition to that, um, you know, you may be in, in a point where you're, you're sort of saying to yourself, okay, so I need to do what I need to do to put food on the table and to make sure everything is okay. And there's a certain amount of deep fulfillment and satisfaction you get just from knowing that you're doing that, that you're aligning your actions with your values. And that's really important to people, you know, and then we go beyond that and say, okay, so from a personal level of fulfillment, you know, for me to feel a sense of meaningfulness and expressed potential and energy and excitement for what I'm doing and lose myself and flow more and have a broader sense of purpose, both in the moment and, and more broadly in life, you know, the more I can do this thing, the work of my sparkotype, the more I get that feeling in addition to, um, you know, parts of that being delivered by meeting my values, you know, so to me, it's, it's completely independent based on, on a person's unique circumstance um, and value set and the way that they might access these similar feelings. And I also think that, Sometimes we get part of that feeling through the work that we do and we get paid for, but we also get some of that feeling through the roles that we take on in life, through the devotions that we have, um, you know, outside of the thing that we get paid for. And the amalgam of being able to express this impulse across all those domains, um, it, it, you know, I think we have to look at all of that and not just say it has to come from our J-O-B or from the thing that actually, you know, like pays us. Well, I, I appreciate that and have experienced that. You know, asking that question of the percentage, it's taken me a long time, uh, Jonathan, to realize my own need to take a break from being a maker and a scientist. It was, it's been a while ago, but I realized in my terminology at the time was I'm addicted to production. And mm. I realized that when I saw posts from friends that were playing and realized I wasn't with them because I'm the guy who often says no, because I'm often over here producing and I, I've forgotten how to play. I, I didn't really, mm. I, what do I do to play? I don't, I produce even in my hobbies, I'm producing in my, in my workouts, I'm, I'm pushing. I don't know how to, and it was my, it was uh, Randy James co-host of, of one of my other, my true life podcast and business partner. And he said, yeah, it's, you're gonna have to do the hard work of relaxation and it's now the, we've kind of flipped it on a, don't just, don't just sit there, do something to don't just do something, sit there. And that's my own medicine. And I find in doing that, it's not my go-to joy. I'm learning, I'm growing in it. Kind of like a, you know, meditation thing, but taking a break from it helps me come back and do it better. Yeah. So agree with you. I think there's a lot of things we need to learn over time. <laughs> yeah, I do too. You we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but you do pick out five domains of being, you know, sparked in essence, purpose, engagement, meaningfulness, expressed potential and flow, which you mentioned a couple of times, which I appreciate. I had Steven Kotler on the show mm. uh, recently who runs the, the flow Institute. But as you, Pull those out. Purpose, engagement, meaningfulness, express potential, and flow. Where do you see us as a, I'm not going to say as a culture even, I'm going to, because 
we are we do have a biased demographic. People listening to this show and your show are a demographic, and I, I didn't I tend to refer to them as an aspiring populist. They're not listening to the next crime scene show for entertainment. They're listening to something here to try to better their lives. So for for those people, even amongst us, these, this is what I'm going to call aspiring. Where do you, amongst those five, see us most often lacking? Um, it's a really interesting question. Um, I'm always curious I think, when I see that to go, gosh, where, where, yeah. where am I most prone to missing I, it? Uh, my, my, my sense is, again, this is be a slightly unsatisfying answer that it's going to depend on the individual. I don't think we can make sweeping generalizations. I think, I think there is a profound, like for the same reason that, you know, like you do that Google experiment, type in, what should I do? And, and for a lot of people, it finishes a sentence with my life, mm-hmm. you know, clearly, and that that's related. That's an existential question that's related to meaning and purpose, you know? And I think there's been a, a lot of questioning around um, why am I doing what I'm doing? Like, does this actually matter to me? Is it meaningful? Is it giving me a sense of meaning? Maybe I'll focus on that because, you know, if you look at the classic midlife crisis or the existential crisis, an existential crisis can drop you to your knees and profoundly alter the course of your life. An existential crisis is not a crisis of money. It's not a crisis of power. It's not a crisis of agency. It's not a crisis of relationships. It's not a crisis of prestige. It's a crisis of meaning. You know, it's a crisis where you hit a point and you say, there's something in you that says, okay, does this matter? Do I matter? Um, and do I want to keep feeling the way that I'm feeling or answering those questions in the way that I'm answering at this moment in time? And for a lot of people, the crisis happens when the answer is no to one of those things or not enough for me. Um, so I think I'm going to sort of like focus around meaning because I, I do feel like that is a huge question on people's minds, especially now as we sort of like, you know, are, are in a, a, a bit of a period of transition and, and emergence. Um, and a lot of people are really realizing what got me here ain't going to get me there. Jonathan, that's the one that I came to. I, that's the one that stuck out. I mean, I'm looking, it's literally page three of your book. And as I looked uh, at that, it's, you, you just have, you just have quick bullet points. It says meaningfulness, the feeling that what you do and who you are matters. And like you, I can look on the podcast reviews and ratings and see the kudos. I can look at the emails that I get today that from people who say, Hey man, what you did or what you said helped me. I can hear my kids and my wife, you know, testify to that. And yet there's still that nagging question when I sit back at, for me at 50 years old and go, am I really, do, do I matter? Do I, is it really that meaningful what I do, am I really providing meaning to people? And I guess I would have to say, maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe that there's something in there that even with a testimony, am I providing meaning in a way that is valuable to me, regardless of what somebody may say I did for them? Is, is it in the way that I, gosh, what would you say, per, that I perceive meaning? Is that fair? Yeah. And, and I think that the, the subtext is there is a lot of people have this question scrolling through their mind, which is, Am I doing the thing I'm here to do? Yeah. And, and of course, underneath that is, what, what is that thing? And I think fundamentally, that's the question I'm trying to get to with the entire body of work around the sparkotypes. Yeah. All right, man. I'm going to fall on the last, the last part of the assessment, which is the anti. Um, because that was, 
honestly, that was concerning to me. Um, no, no, I'll go further. It was disappointing for mm. me. What, can I, you know what? You didn't share, I didn't see yours. What, what is yours? Yeah. Mine is the essentialist, you know? And, and so the anti-sparker type is, yeah. it is the, it's the type of work that tends to come least naturally to you. You feel the, the least impulse to embrace. And when you do it, it tends to empty you the most and require the greatest recovery. And that doesn't mean that you're a bad person. And it also doesn't mean that you haven't learned the skill of becoming really good at it and then feel the sense of confidence and accomplishment that comes from actually doing that. And it also doesn't mean that, you know, you don't care about other people. Um, it just means that when you do it, there's something in you that requires a bit more energy to actually invest yourself in it and also requires a bit more recovery when you do it. And that's, that's okay. You know, it's just, it, it means that you have to sort of acknowledge that. Um, it's funny that you, you said that I'm, I'm guessing you're a anti is either the nurturer or the advocate then. Nurture. Yeah. Nurture. So yeah. you are not the only one who sort of like has, has seen that and then um, really been concerned about it. And, uh, and so I, I've certainly had this similar conversation with a number of people where it's not that you're a bad person, you know, it's not that you don't care about people, you know, it just tells you that there's something about your wiring where you get much more easily lost in process than you do service. And the challenge with that is that societally, we're told that that's not okay, uh -huh. that there's something wrong with you if that's the way you're wired. So we bury that, you know, but in fact, it's completely fine. That's just the way that certain people are wired, you know? Um, and it also doesn't mean that you're not a good and a loving person and that, you know, you, you haven't learned the skill and taken on, you know, like all of the roles and jobs that would allow you to play that role for a lot of other people and make a really big difference. It just kind of tells you that it requires more energy from you and that you actually have to create the space um, to keep refilling that well of energy, maybe more than somebody else. When you look at the word encouragement, that's always been one. I mean, my gosh, Zig Ziglar, he was the king of encouragement. And we often say encouragement, it costs you nothing. That's what we, you know, that's a common terminology. We encourage people, it costs you nothing. And I've always wondered, because I couldn't quantify what did it cost, cost me, but it is so unnatural for me. There's a, did you ever see the movie, um, Oh gosh, it was Will Smith where he's a superhero. Hancock. Hancock. Nah, I didn't see it. He's, he's a, a kind of a, a, a not a happy superhero. And in that, they coach him to give encouragement. And it's just a funny scene of him coming down and then remembering and going, uh, good job. And he has to like force it out. Good job. Well, that's a joke in my home because my kids know that I'm intentionally, you know, I'll start to walk away from something done. I'll come back and I'll go, oh. Good job. Why does that not come naturally to me? And I tend to feel ashamed of that somewhat. And so now to get this thing that my anti is nurture. I mean, who doesn't want to be a nurturer? It feels shameful. And I hope that I'm able to do that. And I, I want to talk, I'm going to talk with my family about that, but then to realize in doing that, that man, it, when we go down to a, a like a mission type effort, which we do in a Native American reservation, and my wife, my wife's number one, her primary is nurture. So we go down mm. there. There's no place I feel more incompetent. And I, and I tend to feel bad about myself. I mean, is that, that's got to be a danger of this when you look at your anti, is to pay, especially depending on what it is. If you're an anti-performer, I think that's easy to say, okay, fine. I'm not a performer. I don't want to perform. Fine. No, no, no harm, no foul. Some of them feel bad. 
Yeah, there are these cultural overlays. That's why actually in the appendix of the book, I share something called the satisfaction spectrum about how all 10 of these types are laid across a spectrum between process and service. And that there has been this culture of shame uh, around people who are just more innately satisfied through process than through service. And it's, and it's wrong, you know, because, um, these are the impulses that just make us want to invest effort. But let me give you another frame for you that might be helpful. Okay. Um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll pose it as a prompt for you to sort of like ponder. How could you tap your maker impulse to increase the nurturing effect to those around you through the process of creation? Oh, man. Because then you can tether the impulse that fills you up to that thing. And then all of a sudden it can really change the experience for you. Man, I don't know. Cause my first thought is a lot. It was, it's kind of a collaboration type answer to let them come alongside and make with me though. I'll admit that's well, you actually talk about collaboration in there as well. It was really interesting. Yeah. I was underlining it. I really need to chew on it more because collaboration to me, whatever, you know, if we're in a team, I want to find out, okay, what, what's my thing. And then let me do it autonomously. I don't want to partner with that. So, so that now you help me with the answer there or, or the nah. concept <laughs> with how to do that, how to nurture as a maker. Yeah. I think there's a really interesting intersection there. You know, like what, how can I tap that impulse yeah. to help those I care about feel seen, heard, understood, and lifted? I need to dig into that. I mean, that, that's one. Nah. I mean, again, in all truth, if be, to be candid, I think there's, a, there's one of the rubs with my wife. She, her primary is nurture. That's my heaviest. So how do we, yeah, probably collaborate is a good word. I mean, obviously we're not, you can't cover this in one show here. And um, I, you know, doing the assessment is key. I, I've got the book here and I actually took it home last night. And so with my uh, family and kids, we're going to go through and talk about it. And that's probably going to be a primary one for Mm -hmm. me to talk with them about is how that's fleshing out, how I can do a better job, how we can align better because we are a team and a, you know, and a business in essence. Yeah. And also I think it's like, it's, it's probably also a good thing to note that just because something is your anti-sparker type doesn't necessarily let you off the hook. It doesn't mean that it's not a part of the thing that you've signed up to do, whether it's through values, you know, to like uh, take care of those around you that you love or like a broader commitment to culture or society or to equality, you know, um, that there, you know, there, there's some things that you do simply because it, it's, it's value aligned yeah. and it feels like it's the right thing to do. And you just figure out ways to take care of yourself so that you replenish yourself when you do that. Cause you know, it's just going to take a bit more out of you. And I'm just, I'm grateful for this. I have not been as wowed by anything in such a long time, Jonathan. So Uh, that's uh, so nice to hear. There's my encouragement. How's that? It wasn't hard at all um, because it was just, (laughs) it was just honest. I'm literally eager to continue digging in. And uh, honestly, even for personal coaching and consulting that I'm doing, I want people to take this. It's, it speaks to me on a more, I don't, a level that I understand more than a lot of the personality types in all honesty, because I've done so many of those. I've seen them. I've had less ability to 
take those and overlay those on, on literal action and, and like this on what you're doing, what's going to provide fulfillment, which is, is what I care about for myself and for others. And this feels like one of the most applicable things I've ever done. So man, thank you for the years mm -hmm. of work. Uh, thank you that even as you love to create things, you're sticking with this one still and putting your effort in. I'm eager to learn more. I probably have more questions to throw uh, at you and we'll be driving people to get the book and take the assessment. And uh, yeah, I want to engage with more people who are doing this and talk about it more. So um, thanks for what you've done. Thanks for uh, taking the time and being here today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All right, friends. Well, once again, that is Jonathan Fields, just such a quality individual. You can go take that test for free. I've had my family take it. I've had my friends take it. I've had some coaching clients uh, take it as well. And there's so many profiles out there. Sometimes I get tired of them, but this one is just unique in that it focuses on our work impulse. What really sparks our joy, fulfillment, inspiration uh, in our work. So you can find it at Spark. Sparktype, S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. -E. doesn't cost anything. I think you just give your email address to get the results. Uh, that's it. And then afterwards, with the email address, they just send you follow-up information that helps you understand it more, uh, which I continue to get this today, months after actually having taken it. Uh, we'll, you can get his book as well, uh, Sparked, S-P-A-R-K-E-D, at you know Amazon, wherever you get that. I have that. I have referenced it so many times in talking with people about their results. Well, hey, we'll be talking further about that, exactly those results and about this issue and how to engage with it and take action in our personal lives to get our uh, work truly sparked. Uh, and we'll be doing that in my Driven to Live community. You can find it at kevinmiller.co. It's 45 bucks per month. It ensures that the people in there are in there to invest in themselves and each, and, uh, and each other for real conversation, leading to real growth. I could attempt to offer you, you know, the five secrets and seven keys to million dollars overnight, which is a great hook, uh, but it'll take the real conversations about what you really need for your progress, mine too. And it doesn't sell as easily to say, hey, the root issue is really personal and deep, but I'd rather offer you what matters than hype you into a perception of something else that is not true or doesn't start at the root issue. Again, come to kevinmiller.co. If you've got any questions or concerns, whatever about joining, just email me, literally email me, kmiller at kevinmiller.co. I will reply to you personally. Well, hey, coming up next in episode 952 of The Ziggler Show, Tom Ziggler and I talk about sales, but it's not what you would expect. Bottom line, the old school format of sales, it just doesn't exist anymore. Today, we don't ever put ourselves in a situation of vulnerability with a salesperson. We don't need to. With any product or service, we can do the research. We can read the reviews and fully inform ourselves. So how do we best deal with this when we have a product or a service to sell? And even more so, we have to sell ourselves. That's the show. Till then, thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together. Mm -hmm.